Good morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. Today we're going to look at the, the narrative of Abraham uh, being asked to sacrifice his son. Um, very familiar story, but I want to turn there uh, as we are in this, uh, this series on idols of the heart. Uh, because I think there's some important things that happen here. First of all, we see a man who, who really stands the test, who really demonstrates at least this moment that we know Abraham had made some mistakes. In this moment, he really does operate from a place that seems to show that there are no idols in his heart. That he just goes out into obedience to a very difficult thing that God asked him uh, to sacrifice. And, and the other thing I think is important to the story is that what God was putting to test in Abraham's life was was not some sin that he loved, but it was actually God's greatest blessing that he ever gave Abraham. That's what he was, was trying to show Abraham, uh, that, that God must be loved supremely. And that includes above all sin, obviously, but it also includes even God's choices, blessing to us, blessings to us, that God is supposed to be loved supremely over those as well. So let's look at this, uh, starting with verse 14. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early. In the morning, he saddled his donkey, and he took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both, uh, they both, with both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and, mount, uh, and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. See, have, you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thickets by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. 
So let's see what, what this story tells us about loving God supremely in our own life. Uh, and even loving him above his choices, blessings. We see first that God reveals himself to Abraham as the giver of blessings. Uh, sometime after the flood, something had gone terribly wrong because we know uh, Noah was in the flood and, and he worshipped God and, and he got out and they restarted uh, mankind. But somewhere along the way, as man tends to do, man left God. There was hardly anyone on the earth who worshipped the true God. But out of one of those idolatrous families, God called a man named Abraham. This is what he said in Genesis 12, 12. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and, pin, uh, and, and uh, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, basically, God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to just give you everything you could possibly imagine. And, and now to be blessed with lands and wealth, that's a great thing. But what will become central to these promises of what Abraham was being offered to God was, was a son. A son that Abraham did not yet have. Abraham and Sarah had not been able to have children. And God not only promises that a son would be born, but that a son would, would be born that would become a great nation. And so they patiently waited. And they waited. And they waited. And then kind of impatiently they waited because uh, they got tired of waiting on God. And Sarah says, just have my, uh, my servant and then, and then she'll bear you a son because God just doesn't seem to be going to do what he said he was going to do. And so we have the birth of Ishmael and, and they say, oh, and, and we've, we've done it for you, God. God said, no, you have to. It's going to happen as I've already told you it's going to happen. You're going to have a son, Sarah. And then Abraham, when Abraham was uh, around 100, Sarah was 90, God comes to them and says, next year, <coughs> next year is going to happen. And it happens. Isaac is born. Can you imagine the joy of a couple that had waited a lifetime? I've, I've had friends that, that struggle with infertility. I see the absolute agony that that has caused them in their life. They just want a child and to not have it. And Abraham and Sarah experienced that for a hundred years. Probably no child has ever been so loved and welcomed as this child was. And even beyond all that, he wasn't just a son. He was a son that to that son was attached a promise. A promise of a nation. A promise of a covenant that God would keep with his people. So they obviously took this son in and they loved him. And he became very precious in their sight. But what is was probably the most shocking request that we have in Scripture, God says in Genesis 22, which we just read, 
He said, take your son. Take your son. Your only son, Isaac, whom you love. I mean, God's, and it's almost like God is almost digging the knife into his heart. The, the only son that you have, the son that you have so much love for. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. As, as shocking as this may seem, I, I think we would be mistaken if we saw this request as absolutely illogical. Okay? I think sometimes we see that this request is just crazy and, and no rhyme or reason to this request. And, but I would argue that there is some rhyme and reason to it. If, if God had come to Abraham and said, go into the next room and kill Sarah, I'm not sure he would have done it. I feel like he would have thought, I'm hearing things. That's an unreasonable, crazy request. There's no logic to it. But when we have God asking for that firstborn and asking for him to be a sacrifice, I think we, there may be more rhyme and reason than we tend to place on this request. God is, is calling for what already belongs to him. The role of the firstborn was incredibly, the, the, the role of the firstborn son was incredibly important in this culture. It would be the, you know, in, in our society, we can, you know, we have our kids and, and the inheritance, we're going to divide it up evenly unless, you know, unless one of our children does something in his living life that we just totally cannot support. We're going to tend to try to divide things evenly among our kids. But in, in this time, the bulk of the inheritance would go to that firstborn son to kind of guarantee that, that at least one of the children would carry on the name and would be successful because he would have the bulk of the wealth. He was the representative of the family. In many, in many ways, he was the family. Also, the idea of God's ownership of the firstborn is, is, is not an idea that is absent from Scripture. If we look at uh, Exodus 22-29 and Exodus 34-20, we see that God requires that the firstborn be given to him. That, that there's a special belonging, a special, uh, a special attachment that he has there to offer him them to him. We even see in Numbers 3 that the Levites are actually chosen as representatives of all of the firstborn of Israel. So instead of all of the firstborn of Israel going to the temple and, and, uh, and living the, the, life, the life of the Levites, uh, the Levites would stand in as a substitute for all of the firstborn of Israel. It's really interesting when you begin to see that there's, there's something very special. We know that when God punishes the land of Egypt, what does he do? He comes through and he kills what? The firstborn. And so really God is calling for what should have already been given to him. He's calling for something that, that is his. I mean, we know for decades and decades, God coming and saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give you this son. And he's going to be very special. This is, the son belongs to God. We also see here that God is asking that Isaac be a burnt offering. He'd be, in essence, a sin offering. 
It's possible that Abraham might have balked if God had simply said, go to the next room and stab your son. But God's asking Abraham to not just simply murder his son. He's asking that Abraham offer up his son as an atoning offering. So what I'm trying to say here is that though the request is incredibly hard and, and it's unthinkable, it's not illogical. Isaac, as a representative of the family, is being offered up for the sins of the family. Can Abraham withhold from God what already belongs to God? Does Abraham have any room to say there shouldn't be a sacrifice? We're sinless. Our family doesn't have any sin. He certainly couldn't say that because the things that had happened with Ishmael and Hagar, and, and uh, we know in Abraham's life he had a, sometimes a problem telling half-truths to get himself out of trouble. There was sin in the family. So Abraham does not protest because he doesn't really have an argument. That Isaac does belong to God. That, that God is the one who gave him Isaac. And that they certainly have sins as a family. So in verse 3 it says here, which is fascinating to me, is so Abraham, Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him. I mean, even if Abraham has the belief that God has a right to ask what he's asked of me, I still feel like I'd have to sleep in that morning. I'd have to sleep in and say, I'm just going to sleep in late. Let God get a little more time to think about the situation. Maybe he'll change his mind. But no, Abraham rises early in obedience. He cuts the wood for the fire and he heads to the place where he's been told to sacrifice his son. Is he obeying simply out of understanding that God is holy and deserves his allegiance? Is that all that, that, is, that is getting him going? Is that, hey, God has a right to request this, and so I've got to do it? I don't think that's the whole story. I believe that there's more moving forward, moving Abraham forward than what we, we might think. Verse 5, it says, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So you catch that? He tells his men that they're going to come back. Both of us. We, we, we really, for the first time, get a real view of what's going on in Abraham's mind in Hebrews chapter 11 when he is testified of what a, what a great act of faith this was. And it says that he believed that God could even raise his son from the dead. So what we have revealed, and it kind of what he tells the men that we're both going to come back, and what we see in Hebrews that in his mind was the idea that even if I plunge this, this knife into my son, even if I burn him up, that God has the power to, to raise him. So Abraham seemed to think that God had something up his sleeve 
not yet revealed that would make this all work out in the end. The, the promise is still there, right? Like God hasn't taken back the promise that he's going to make a nation. That he's making a covenant with Abraham. He hadn't taken that back. And so Abraham's thinking, it's got to work out. For God's promises to be true, this thing has to work out. So I believe what is moving Abraham forward is, is both a belief in the holiness of God, that God has a right to ask this of me, but it's also a belief in the grace of God that ultimately God's going to make this work out. I love how Tim Keller states how these truths are pushing Abraham forward in obedience. He says this, if he had not believed that he was in debt to a holy God, he would have been too angry to go. But if he had not also believed that God was a God of grace, he would have been too crushed and too hopeless to go. So I want to spend the rest of our time kind of breaking down how these two truths can guard our hearts from idols. The, the truth that, that the holiness of God should bring us and to fear Him enough where He's supreme. That, that He is tops. That, that there is nothing our children, as much as they're a blessing, our spouse, as much as they may be a blessing, that nothing in my life is above God. That my affections for God is above every other affection that I have, that, that His holiness demands that. But that also the grace of God should bring us confidence that if I keep God first, that, that I will get to enjoy the other blessings that He's given me, and I will be able to enjoy them more. So, I want us to first look at, because God is holy, He demands to be loved more than all things. Even his blessings. A blessing given by God does not negate the danger of it becoming an idol in the heart. Isaac was absolutely a blessing from God to Abraham. God was, uh, or Isaac was the was promised by God for decades. Isaac was the son for whom the covenant of God was attached. <clears throat> through this child a nation would be built through this son a savior would be born ultimately he was a treasure from God yet he existed as a potential idol in the heart of Abraham the question was not Abraham's love of Isaac the question was where was that love in comparison to God God knows he loves him. God knows he loves him a lot. He said, your only son whom you love. Now, I don't know, I don't know if God's request is, is a direct confrontation of sin that he sees in Abraham's heart. That, that has God looked at Abraham's heart and seen that now Abraham's love for his son had exceeded his love for God. I don't feel like it reads like that. I don't feel like God comes to him angry. God comes to him saying, hey, you love your son. Take, take your son. He didn't say, you love your son too much. I'm going to teach you a lesson. He, I, 
I tend to think that maybe God just knew that that potential existed. And that Abraham needed to be shown that the son that he had waited decades and decades and decades before should be loved, but that he needed to make sure that he loved God more. The question was, did God, did Abraham love God supremely? Would Abraham offer up the most prized blessing from God, showing that God was loved and feared above all else in his life? Folks, it's not just the sinful things that can take our heart from God. It is his blessings as well. And I would say sometimes those are the things that, that covertly come to us. Like sins, we, man, we know they're in our lives. We know they need to be gotten out of our life. We know we replace them before God. They're, they're dirty. They're bad. It's so hard to say, I can love my child too much. It's hard to say, I can love my spouse too much. It just, I can love this thing that God's given me to bless me too much. But the reality is, is it's, it's an idol that we rarely see. We rarely see it coming. We rarely see it moving into our heart. Because it's such a beautiful thing, it's a good thing. And yet it exists as a potential to take our heart from God. What God asked Abraham to put on the altar was not some sin. It was the most important blessing that God gave Abraham. It was the child through which Christ would come. And yet God wanted to show him, don't love it more than me. Don't love it more than me. God calls us not to withhold anything from When, when it's all said and done, what does he say? He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. That's God commends him that you, you haven't withheld. It's, he's not locked up in your heart where, where he shouldn't be. But I'm in your heart. Now, we know that, that God knows the heart of every man, right? Like, God could have just looked in Abraham's heart and, and known, if I ask Abraham to do this, he's going to do it. And yet, God desired for it to play out in real life. And, and I think he did that for Abraham, because Abraham needed to see it. And I think he did it for us, because we needed to see it. So we would read this story. It's an amazing story. First, he did it for Abraham. He, he wanted to put Abraham in a furnace and then cause his faith to, in a sense, come forth as gold. Do you think Abraham was ever the same after this event? I think A.W. Tozer captures well what life may have been like after this event for Abraham. It says this, After that bitter and blessed experience, I think the words my and mine never have again the same meaning for Abraham. The sense of possession which they connote was gone from his heart 
Things had been cast out forever. They had now become external to the man. His inner heart was free from them. The world said, Abraham is rich, but the aged patriarch only smiled. He could not explain it to them, but he knew that he owned nothing. That his real treasures were inward and eternal. In the end of this difficult event, Abraham had lost nothing. He lost nothing, and he gained everything. He still had his son, and that son had forever been removed from the temple of his heart. Do you think Abraham loved his son less after this event? No. Do you think he received less joy from his son? No way. I believe that Abraham's obedience here made him able to love his son more. I think his joy in his son was multiplied because it is only when we love God the most that we can truly love others. God had Abraham endure this so that we could look upon this and see his example. This event seals Abraham as a spiritual giant. Christians, Jews, even Muslims look back to Abraham and his example of faith. In many ways, this is the defining moment of Abraham's life. He serves as a reminder to us all that we are called to love God supremely. That even God's choices blessings do not belong in the temple of our hearts. Only God belongs there. What does Jesus say in Luke 14, 26 about being his disciple? He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. One of the most hardest sayings of Jesus. Does that mean Jesus wants us to just treat everyone in our life with disrespect and just hate them? Slap them around a little bit? No, he means that, that our love for God, our love for Christ, has to be in, 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 a, in a level all its own. A level beyond anything, any love we have for any relationship on this earth that, that we must keep our love of Him supreme. Parent, your child's greatest need is not to know that you love them. It's to know that you love them but you love God more. Your spouse's greatest need is not to know that you love them. It's to know that you love them, but you love God more. There's more to this story than just a lesson about priorities. What we have here is the foreshadowing of the God who gave all. So, lastly, I want to know is that because God is full of grace, 
we can rest assured that he will provide for all of our needs. He said, uh, God shows up and he says, don't lay, don't lay a hand on me. Don't lay a hand on me. And then, behind the altar there, that, that, that Abraham had in faith built for his son, there's a ram. It's ready. That God had put there to be the substitute. And we're told here, as, as Abraham just is overjoyed that the Lord has provided. Abraham had indicated that though he was willing to offer up Isaac, that, that he seemed to have suspicions that God would intervene to bring a happy ending to this. While he moved into action and, and he had every intent to do this difficult task, he was entrusting himself to the God of grace. That, that he would do something more, that there would that would not be the end, that if he did this action, that God would would turn it for his good. And we see that that faith that he had in God's grace was not his own. God did not desire for Abraham to have to kill his son. So he provided a substitute to, to be an offering in his place. The, the most vivid foreshadowing in the Old Testament to me of the death of Christ. Not only was God unwilling that Abraham would suffer the horror of killing his son, God himself, this points to the fact that God himself was willing to endure exactly that, the killing of his son. It shows how blind some unbelievers can be. Because like unbelievers, I've heard atheists use this as, as how bad God is. And he would, he would you know, ask uh, Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Come on, man. You're not even trying to understand the story. Like, first of all, he didn't. But he knew it. And second of all, he was painting a picture that God himself was going to do exactly that for the salvation of mankind. Come on. Hey, you should not even try to understand what's right there clearly revealed for us. That God is a God of grace. In this story, we not only see a God that is worthy of being absolute in our lives. But he proven, he's proven himself time and time again to be trustworthy with anything we give him. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How can we how can we not Trust our kids, our our job, and our our spouses, and and our parents, and just all the choices, the most amazing blessings from God. How can we not entrust those to His care? A loving God like that that would not withhold His own Son, but would kill Him so that we would have life. 
We don't lose anything that comes second to God in our life. On the contrary, God will show us the beauty of those blessings in amazing, amazing ways. So this morning, I don't want you to, to think about all the bad, evil things in your life and how they're a threat to your relationship with God, although they are. This morning, I want, to think, I want you to think about your blessings. I want you to think about the good things that you love the most. Let me ask you, would you, like Abraham, move without hesitation to lay them on the altar? It's not about loving the blessings that you have. God's fine with that. It's about making sure that you love God more than all those blessings. To make sure that you, you love the giver more than you love his gifts. Are you living in such a way that your kids would say, Mom or Dad, love me, but they love God a lot more. Let's let these two truths that God in Abraham's heart be truths that would guide our own heart. As our musicians come, first, God is holy. And because of that, he deserves supreme love and devotion above all things, even his blessings. He's, he's holy. And it already belongs to him anyway. So we really have no choice but to make him supreme. That's his rightful place. But second, God is a God of grace. And we will find that when we offer those things to God and make sure that we love God more than those things, we'll lose nothing. And we'll gain everything. I'm going to ask you to please stand and, and respond however God has uh, spoken to you through His Word and through the Spirit to respond. Let's pray. God, move in our hearts this morning, God, that we would make sure that you are first, that you are supreme, that the idols do not exist in the temple of our heart. Only you do. God, help us to trust and to know that this is right, that this is what a holy God demands. Help us also trust in your grace and realize that we would love everything else more and better and with more joy when he's first. How when you're first, Christ is first. How move in our hearts. How that you might
might be served. In Jesus' name I pray.